Welcome to The Balance. My name is Catlin Tucker, and this podcast is sponsored by StudySync. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Maria Hersey, who is a global educator with extensive experience in the areas of educational leadership, international education, social-emotional learning, curriculum design, and global-mindedness. She is currently the principal advisor for Global Education Advisors, and Maria's previous work actually included director of education and training for the Hahn Foundation, where she managed the evidence-based social-emotional program called Mind Up. Maria is one of my absolute favorite people. I have had the opportunity to work with her internationally, and she is such a calming, thoughtful presence in my life as a friend and as an educator who I have the the pleasure of knowing. So I just could not be more thrilled to get to chat with her today. So I'd love for us to start by you just telling us a little bit about your journey in education, Maria. Hey, Catelyn. Good afternoon. I'd love to do that. I think my journey in education is a lifelong one. I'm fortunate that I found my passion and my purpose in life, and it all started when I was a classroom teacher. I've taught mostly in high-needs public schools, and I've worked as a curriculum coordinator where I was introduced to the world of international education. So I got really interested in that and how do we kind of shape educational policies and practices within school systems. So I went into the not-for-profit world and started working for the International Baccalaureate, or IB, as some people might know. And then I had a little shift after about 10 years, and I had the pleasure of working for Goldie Hawn, the actress. She has a fantastic program for social and emotional learning called Mind Up, and I was really immersed in that work. And it really brought the two worlds that I love, international-mindedness and mindfulness together, you know, just connecting people Mm -hmm. wherever they are. And now I'm working with a group, Global Education Advisors, and we travel and work with schools around the world in the U.S. And um, I'm working with graduate and undergraduate students in educational leadership and equity and curriculum and inquiry. So it's a pretty exciting place, and it's going to keep continuing, I think. Yeah, and social-emotional learning right now, I feel like I am hearing... It everywhere. People are focused on it. There are trainings. They're trying to raise awareness about it. And I know you do a ton of work with schools focused on social emotional learning. So when you go into a school district or you're working with a group around social emotional learning, how do you approach that training, that kind of a training? I think that's a great question. And I think schools really have to consider and school districts really have to consider what their priorities and what are their needs. So I always go asking questions, you know, what are the things that you hope to develop for your students and your teachers? What's the context and what are the pressure points? What are the things that you really want to focus on? Because every school, every district, every place is different. There are a lot of similarities in terms of teachers' stress and anxiety and students' stress and anxiety. But it's always important to see what is the district or what does the school know about social and emotional learning? What are some misconceptions? And then, then where do they want to go? And I think wherever we're working, we always talk about beginning with the teachers and having the teachers take care of themselves first. You know, we're always asking teachers to do things for their students, Mm -hmm. but what can they do for themselves first? How do they practice their own self-care? Yeah, I, I love that. I think so often conversations in education focus kind of myopically on the students and what's best for students and how do we meet students' needs. And I worry that sometimes the educators who are under so much pressure themselves get a little overlooked in those conversations. 
I think they get completely overwhelmed. And a few years ago, there was some research about the level of stress and anxiety and the lack of self-care for teachers, uh, first responders. And those levels were very similar. Oh, wow. So it's, yeah, it's really important for teachers to take a look at themselves. You know, they're, they're teachers first. They worry about their students. Then it usually goes to their families. Then it goes to their friends. So it's, it's always important for them to recognize that their own self-care is important. And you always hear that, put your own oxygen mask on first before right. taking care of others, <laughs> which is something really important for teachers to remember about themselves. Yeah, that's crazy to think that the teachers and first responders have like that much similarity in the research in terms of kind of their own health and well-being. Like that's, that's crazy. Well, that's their practice, right? They're always used to taking care of everyone else first and taking care of everyone else's needs. And then they look around to see, okay, what's left for me? And usually there's not so much. There's a lot of trauma in all of those fields. Teachers are dealing with a lot. Students are dealing with a lot. There's a lot of research on ACE, adverse childhood experiences. So it's how do we help teachers manage that, their own trauma and experiences and that of others as well. Yeah. And so often they're carrying almost like the trauma from their students as well. You know, they want to be there for their students. And I feel like teachers act as all of these different roles from therapist, to caregiver, to teacher. And that's a lot for them to manage on an emotional level for sure. It's a lot for them to manage. And they don't have the support or the professional training or the certifications or the time to manage all those ever-shifting pieces of the puzzle. So I think it's really important that that we see how do we support teachers, how do we work together as a community, including parents and the larger community to just make things better and easier and more manageable for everybody in the school systems. Yeah, I agree. And so what what do you think teachers really need to do for themselves in a, in a tangible way if they're going to effectively model kind of healthy balance the social emotional learning that we're we're going to be working with our kids around. I think that's a great question and I think the first thing teachers have to do is give themselves permission, right? They have to give themselves permission to acknowledge their feelings, to acknowledge their stress and anxieties, to take some time to take care of themselves first. You know, what are the things that you would say to your own best friend is something that I often say to teachers and they come out with these really fantastic statements and words of comfort, but they don't often do that for themselves. So how do they practice self-care and compassion for themselves first? And, and also for teachers, it's important. How do they learn that it's okay to say no or not right now? Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and you as, as a parent and a, and a doc student and a presenter and someone who has a strong online presence, you know that you've got to take time for yourself, whether it's prioritizing exercise, finding time to do the things that you love to do, and just making that the first priority. Yeah, absolutely. And I love your comment about kind of prioritizing it and then not feeling guilty about taking that time and space for ourselves. I think a lot of teachers, and I've definitely found myself in this boat throughout the years, is I feel like as soon as I take a breath and I downshift, I feel a little guilty. Like there's Mm -hmm. something I should be doing that I'm not doing. And it's taken a real intentional effort to recognize that the things that I do that are not directly connected to my work, whether it's reading a great book or finding a fun new recipe I'm excited to try or go and work out or just be present and play a board game with my kids that, or, or even binge watch a Netflix show, that those are things that feed me in different ways mm-hmm. and are going to help me show up in a, 
in a better, more healthy way for the people that I'm working with, whether that's students or teachers or leadership. Absolutely. And something that you said that's really important is, is setting that intention. One of the things that I say to teacher is, teachers is when you start off in the morning, how do you set an intention for each day? What's your purpose or your primary focus going to be for that day? You know, we often get um, inundated with articles and podcasts and resources that say, what's your purpose in life? That's a pretty daunting task. So (laughs) what do you want to do today? Right. How does that help you get ready for your larger purpose? But then how do you just manage the things for the day? And like you said, not feel guilty about taking care of yourself. It's the most important thing. You hear about sleep and well-being and exercise. It's training your brain just like you train your body, right? How do you connect those neurons and get those those things fired together so you can wire your brain for a healthy mindset and a healthy life? Yeah. And I like I like your point about making it manageable because so often, like you said, I read great, inspiring things that talk about articulating your why, articulating your purpose, what drives you. But sometimes that is really daunting. So can we start the day with a little routine that's just for us where we articulate for ourselves what is it we really want to focus on today and maybe even jotting it down and then at the end of the day revisiting that to think about mm-hmm. how close did I get to that? Can mm-hmm. I call today a success for me? Is this something I need to work on for tomorrow? And just making it more bite-sized and manageable as an intention. And bite-sized is a key piece, right? You don't have to meditate for 30 minutes every day. (laughs) You can meditate for three minutes and you just keep committing to that practice. You don't have to take a 40-minute walk or an hour and a half walk. Maybe you take 10 minutes in the morning to yourself and then you do a longer walk later. Some people get up early and just have a nice cup of coffee and listen to the radio. Walking your dog can be a mindful practice. They can be simple things, but the most important thing is to take time for that. Yeah. And are there specific strategies that you use when you're working with teachers to help them kind of develop their understanding of their of their social emotional learning of the ways in which they kind of take time and care for themselves? I always tell them that there are tons of apps out there that are they're used to develop a positive mindset and the practice of meditation or mindful awareness or whatever it might be that you feel is calling you. Some of the research says that in as little as three weeks, you can start to train your brain for more mindful practices. So it's this idea of how do you commit to a regular practice and what does that look like? There is an activity that was started by Dr. Dan Siegel where you actually write down the three things that went well each day. Mm-hmm. And you keep doing that in a journal for up to three weeks to start to develop a more positive mindset. I spoke to a participant who said his son, who is in the military, actually used that practice of writing down three things that went well just to help him build a positive mindset and deal with some of the things that he'd been dealing with. And he said it really made a difference. So it's something as easy as journaling, Mm -hmm. starting a gratitude journal, taking long walks every day and journaling about how you're feeling and listening to your body and your inside voice. What is it telling you? The mindfulness and the meditation apps are great. There's a a great app called Meditation, and it sends you as many positive messages as you'd like to each day. And it's just a simple reminder because as you get busy in everyday life, you start to forget those things. So why not use technology in a positive way to help you remember how to take care of yourself? Yeah, I, I could not agree more. I I stumbled on the app Headspace, which kind of does some guided meditation because I am not a 
natural meditator, but I just have a, <laughs> I have a very hard time quieting my mind. It is constantly worrying. And I found that yoga is probably the closest I'm going to get to settling my mind, but using that app and just going through some guided, very short meditations, it's always funny. Cause I think, Oh, is it even worth it? It's just going to be like five <laughs> minutes. Like what impact can that have? But it really does like just calm the whole body when you focus on your breathing and you try to very intentionally let go of the things that are kind of crowding your head space. So, and one of the things that you say, absolutely. Sometimes just taking a deep breath is yeah. kind of all you need to kind of resettle and reflect and refocus and just being aware of how you're feeling. If you're feeling angry or anxious, just taking a deep breath and stepping back from a minute you know, we talked to teachers about timeout used to be a negative consequence for students, but it's really about setting a calming corner in a classroom mm -hmm. and finding a space where students can just go and regroup. That's also important for teachers. You know, I'm starting to see more and more schools developing um, kind of reflection places for teachers where they can just go in quietly with nice calming music and plants and soft lights, and they can just kind of sit and rest. There are yoga mats set out. Everyone needs time to kind of reset their body because the truth is we're all going to face anxieties and struggles and we're all going to have bad days. So how do we kind of manage those, those feelings and how do we navigate that? Yeah, I love that. I wish I wish I saw more of that on schools because I could see that being a really helpful just to create that space and that opportunity if teachers need it. And and I like the the part about the journal too because I think it's so easy at least for me to fixate on what didn't go right, what mm -hmm. I didn't get done. And to be honest, most of the time I'm setting totally unrealistic expectations for what a human being can actually get done in a day, so I always feel like I'm falling a little short even though I'm being productive. And so really focusing on the what went well and taking the time to recognize it and write it down. I could see that having a really simple yet profound impact on the way we view our days. Absolutely. And it makes such a difference in your personal life and your professional life. And I can completely relate. Uh, getting me to sit still for, <laughs> for five or 10 minutes is a challenge. But it's also knowing that your body is going to go through those cycles of distraction and awareness. That's a natural cycle and pattern in your body. So how do you kind of raise your awareness of that and, and learn how to manage that so that cycle of distraction is a little bit shorter? And then also, what do you need to do as an adult? Do you need to stand up? Do you need to move around? Typically in workshops with teachers, I'm like, this is your space. And you're very much in the space of, of student agency and learner agency. And the same needs to be for teachers as well. So when we're working at schools, how do we, how do we let teachers be in control of their own learning, walking around, standing? sitting on the floor, whatever makes you comfortable, you know your body, listen to your body, what is it telling you, and give yourself permission and other need, other people need to give you permission to make those movements and adjustments. Yeah, and maybe if they start to feel how that, how their bodies respond to having that flexibility and that, you know, I can move and I can do what's best for me, I'd love to see more of that kind of a, an approach taken with kids as well, because mm -hmm. I think about, you know, especially as a mom of two children, we put kids in these rooms all day and we want them to sit still for a lot of the day. And it's so, I mean, frankly, it's totally unnatural. And it's always kind of surprises me. I'll go in and work with teachers around a blended learning model, like the station rotation. And mm -hmm. part of the station rotation is rotating physically between these different stations in the classroom. And, and there are benefits to that, like all of the research on, you know, 
the brain and movement shows that movement is good for your brain. And it's also great for kids to just mentally, I'm wrapping up this task and I'm physically moving to another location where I'm going to tackle a different task. There's something about actually moving that kind of puts an end to one thing and mentally allows us to pick up and start another. And yet I cannot tell you how many classrooms I go into or how many teachers I work with who they do not want kids to move. They're so afraid Mm -hmm. of the chaos that may ensue if kids Mm -hmm. are moving around the room. But I feel like we need to just embrace that and teach them how to transition without, you know, creating a totally chaotic, uh, environment, but also maybe it's okay if they have a little chat when they're moving from one place to another, like they're social beings and we can't expect them to just sit in one place all day and be attentive. They're, they're too young. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think it's absolutely essential, especially when you think about students across all ages. And I do some work with middle schools and high schools and uh, we did a brain break with the students. We did a full day of, of mindful awareness practices for high school students And I said to the kids, what was your favorite part of this presentation? And they said, mindful breathing and the brain break. They said, you know, we're up in the morning at six o'clock in the morning. It's bell to bell. We go to lunch. We Mm -hmm. have after school jobs or athletics. We just don't get a time to sit and be. And if you think about your typical middle school or high school students, six or seven period a day for 45 or 50 minutes and bell to bell is a big stressor. And they don't have time to be kids and to talk to each other. To your point, we're social beings. So how do we provide more opportunities for that to happen? Because it's a completely different world than the one we grew up in. Oh, yeah. And we, right? And, and, and I think it's important. If we want kids to develop responsibility and self-management, we have to give them opportunities to practice these skills. Right. Self-regulation does not happen magically. We need to practice these skills for sure. And kids are going to make mistakes. And I think that's okay. Like that's what school and education is trying to teach them how to do is refine these parts of themselves and improve them. And I don't think we should be so scared of that social kind of energetic part of being in a classroom. Absolutely. You know, I think part of the problem might be the way we label soft skills or social emotional learning skills. People think they're not as important. But if you look in the business world, they'll tell you that collaboration, synthesis of new ideas, design thinking, those are the skills that that kids need in the future because the content is going to be constantly shifting and changing. Yeah. So we've got to give kids the opportunity, like you said, to learn to communicate with each other, to self-manage themselves and talk about delayed gratification, to think <laughs> for themselves. Yeah. And and you've got that that, you know, failure is now fail is the first attempt in learning. How do we make that shift to a growth mindset and let kids see and teachers see that we're not always going to get it right, but what are the lessons learned and how do we move forward? Exactly. So when you work with, so I know you work with teachers related to kind of their social emotional learning. How is that different or similar to what happens on the student side when we're thinking about how to support students in this way? You know, it's very similar and there really is very little difference. The hardest thing I think when working with kids is talking to them and saying it's okay to talk about your feelings and how you're feeling and to communicate that. There's mm-hmm. usually not time in the day or they're taught, you know, that that's something you keep to yourself. So it's, it's always this idea of self-awareness and getting in tune with your, with your feelings and what that looks like. And the same thing that we ask about teachers, I think the same thing that we all struggle with in terms of procrastination and organizing our time, teachers and students, adults and children both, they need to learn the skills of, of self-management 
social skills and intercultural awareness, especially in today's world, you keep seeing the words compassion and resilience. Mm-hmm. How do we develop that? Um, we talk about communication skills for both teachers and students. You know, how do we learn to listen actively to others and how do we learn to, to speak when we notice difference? So there's really not much different. Everything needs to be age appropriate, right? You need to learn how to moderate that depending on the age of the person that you're talking to. You also need to be aware of their context. One of the things that we say in mindful awareness is if you're doing something like a brain break or a mindful moment, you tell students and adults, you don't have to close your eyes, especially for those that have been involved in trauma. Mm. So there really just isn't a difference. It's just what are the experiences and how do you connect to those individuals, whatever their ages are? Because you're seeing a, ra- a rise in student anxiety. The CDC just reported a rise in teen suicides in the last few years. Yeah. So we're seeing a lot of anxiety and depression. And it's not meant to scare people, but we just it needs to be on our periphery. We need to be aware of it. And to your point, it's, it's just as important to teach children how to communicate their feelings and be aware of their feelings and, and kind of manage and regulate their feelings just as important as it is to learn to read, write, and do math, right? I'm oh, sure yeah. you've seen kids that are super gifted and super bright don't know how to communicate and talk with each other. So the IQ test isn't the only indicator of well-being and success in life. Right. And the reality is so many kids are bringing so much in their kind of proverbial backpacks to school that unless they know how to work through some of that, communicate how they're feeling, I don't I don't think it's going to be possible for them to really lean into learning if they have all this other stuff going on that they don't feel like they know how to express or talk about or work through. And and I really see your point about as teachers, we the more we practice these things, the more we hone these skills ourselves, just like anything else, the easier it's going to be to guide students in honing these skills and practicing these new routines to, to hopefully make some progress in terms of supporting students who are anxious or depressed or dealing with some kind of trauma. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of research and talk about growth mindset. And one of the hardest things for teachers to do is to actually say, I made a mistake, or I don't know, or I'm not sure. How do we find out together? So it's facilitating those conversations um, and, and letting kids know that this is a joint or a collaborative effort and what that might look like. It's also, I think, social media has a huge impact Mm -hmm. on what's happening in our personal and professional lives. Children today can't really get away from social media and constantly comparing themselves. So I always say to teachers, Facebook is everyone's highlight reel, right? That's not really the reality. Mm, so right. we don't. that's not something we want to focus on. And, and like Brene Brown says, we have to be willing to be vulnerable and find the circle of people that we can kind of share what some of our frustrations or our anxieties might be. And then like lots of, of resources will tell you, you have to name those feelings to tame those feelings. Mm-hmm. It's acknowledging what's in the room and being able to have a conversation about that. And the same is for students. I see you're feeling angry and upset. Maybe you just need to take a moment to yourself and let's come back and regroup and talk about that. Yeah. And your point about social media kind of following you everywhere is something that definitely concerns me for young kids. Because even, you know, my daughter's 12 and I remember two years ago, so she was 10 years old and we had a sleepover for her birthday and 
all of the girls came with devices. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my goodness, I didn't even (laughs) think to say, this is a device-free party. Like while they're together, I want them playing board games or watching movies or, you know, whatever, making tacos. But instead, they were all with devices and plugged in. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is so scary. Like how do we teach this generation, one, to practice boundary setting with these devices. And two, like you said, social media, what people share on Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram, these are the highlights. These mm-hmm. are This is the face they want you to see. This isn't necessarily reality. It rarely is even a glimpse at what's really happening for folks. And how do we build some of that conversation into the classroom? Because they are inundated with visuals and information and, you know, social pressure all the time. And I think it's increasingly our job to help kind of talk them through boundary setting with these devices and with technology and 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 ways in which to think about the things that they're seeing online. And so they don't think that this is real life and there's something wrong with me because my life doesn't look like what I'm seeing here. Yeah. And I think boundary setting is an important word for us, for our students and our children, and also for us as adults, right? I often talk to principals and school leaders about if you're sending emails at midnight or three o'clock in the morning, or you're responding over the weekend or on vacation, you're setting the tone for the culture in your school. Yeah. It, unless it's an emergency, what, what systems and protocols do you have in place for people to know that at a certain time at eight o'clock PM, unless it's an emergency, let's not respond to email. When we're on vacation, we're on vacation. When we're spending time with family on the weekend, that's that's the point where you have to be able to do those things. And you have to be, like you said earlier, very intentional about that for yourself personally and professionally. Um, I think it's important. And just like that thing about spending three weeks to do something, you can rewire your brain and remove yourself from that constant anxiety or need to click on uh, notifications and just enjoy that kind of face-to-face interaction with other people or just time to yourself. Right. And you don't realize how much of your attention and focus gets wrapped up in social media until you take a step back from it. I know for a while I was checking in on Twitter like multiple times a day because people would be asking questions and I was like, oh, I need to be a resource. And Mm. then I had a moment where I was like, you know, this is, it's too much. Like I'm going to check in in the morning and I'm going to check in in the evenings. And if I have a moment in midday, maybe I'll do it, but I'm not going to, it's not going to be a continual thing all day, every day, because it's exhausting, but you don't realize when you're in it, just how exhausting it is. I accidentally deleted my email app from my phone (laughs) two weeks ago. And it's the best thing I ever ever did because I don't have the anxiety responding right away. It's that intention. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, and email is just like a big game of boomerang. As soon as you send one out, you get one back. So I like, I have said it before and I will say it again. My favorite feature on Gmail is the schedule emails because I can write emails whenever I want. But if I'm like, you know what? I need to be super productive. I need to focus on this particular task for the next three hours. I'm not going to respond to an email. I'm not going to send an email because I'll just get one right back. (laughs) Absolutely. And I love what you do. And I love what you do with social media and how you really engage teachers with balanced learning. It's this idea that I don't have to do everything. I can engage others in the conversation. And you know what? It's probably even more meaningful and more purposeful than if I tried to do everything myself. 
right? Yes. It is that community. And if you want to achieve balance in your life, you have got to engage with others. And you've also got to know when enough is enough. Listen, we could go 24 hours a day and we'll never get through our to-do list. That is always building. Mm -hmm. So how do we prioritize and set an attention? This is my purpose for today. If I can get to it, great. If not, but part of that purpose has to be taking care of your own personal needs first. I think the quote that gets the biggest laugh from teachers is you that I get from when I talk with teachers is you don't have to set yourself on fire to keep others warm. <laughs> Let them bring their own jackets sometimes, they'll be fine. Yeah, no. As, as and teachers, I think we've been conditioned to want to do it all, but I cannot agree more. As soon as we start to rethink our roles and share the responsibility for learning with our students and really create these intentional learning communities, not only do we not have quite so much we're biting off, but it's so much more rewarding Mm -hmm. to see students leading the learning. Mm -hmm. And so that does drive a lot of my work with teachers. Um, and I know you you travel internationally. We met in, a, in an international conference in Africa. And so what do you see teachers really struggling with? Where do you see the areas of Im- imbalance that tend to kind of pop up regardless of where you are in on the globe training teachers? Mm. You know, it's funny because you would expect when we go to different places and you and I met in Senegal. You would expect that um, things would be so different, but there's so many things that are that are similar, and there are so many points of connection. Teachers are always worried about time and the challenge and struggle of time. Totally right. How do I fit this all in? We're always giving something extra for teachers to do. You mentioned a list: their counselor, their caregiver, their their teacher. They're all of these different things to everyone else. And how do we make sure that we have time to fit everything in without taking something away? We're never saying, okay, well, we want you to teach social emotional learning, but you're not going to have to do this. It's just, and we're (laughs) not going to give you any extra time, no. (laughs) And we're not going to pay you any extra money. Of course not. So it's no no surprise that globally we're seeing a reduction in colleges of education. Fewer people are going into education. There are teacher shortages. So time is a big thing for teachers. And then also making sure they're meeting the needs of a very diverse group of, of learners and very traditional systems and structures, right? We still, in most schools around the world, have kids sitting in rows facing the front. Um, And even if there's technology use, it's mostly a worksheet that's been created on the computer. So we're not using the technology for what it's meant to be and for that full place. So everywhere I go with teachers, there's, there's that piece. And there's also the stress and anxiety of managing the workload and what does that look like? Um, And so it's always amazing that things are just so similar. You know, we still have the same loves and things that make us happy. I'm so inspired by teachers because no matter what happens, their dedication to their students is never ending. And they are always willing, right, to just give it a try. Yeah. I was in a classroom. um, I was coaching in South Carolina last week. And I had done one day of co-lesson planning with teachers. And then one day where I was in the classroom coaching, giving feedback, helping to run stations if it was a station rotation. And there was this one class. And oh my gosh, the lesson was awesome. The kids, it was cute because a couple of them walked in. You could just see they were like not having a great day. They didn't look excited to be there. But then the lesson got going and they were so intrigued by the different activities that they were, and they were almost all collaborative uh, stations. Mm. And I saw their whole affect kind of turn in this moment where they were 
kind of challenge to work together and problem solve. And then the teacher was on at the teacher-led station and really individualizing and personalizing that experience for the different kids at her station. And at the end of the day, one of the kids who had come in and was clearly having a rough day to start, he basically comes up to her and he goes, two minutes. And I was like, what is happening? Cause I was waiting to kind of debrief with her <laughs> and he goes two minutes and she goes, okay, two minutes. And then they start hugging and he's like a little <laughs> sixth grader who just like, was like, I need a two minute hug. And she was like, bring it in. And I thought these teachers are the most incredible humans. Like, can you imagine all the things she probably needs to do between one class and the next? And she's like, you need a hug. You're asking for a hug. Bring it in for a two-minute hug. You know what I mean? I Absolutely. Was just like, I wanted to cry because I was like, this is so beautiful. That is. And the, and the other beautiful thing is you know that that teacher has developed that relationship with her students, right? I know. So she's allowed that to happen, and she's recognized that that's important. And that is something that most most of the kids will tell you. It just takes, it just takes one person. Yep. To know that you matter, that you care to make a difference. And we can all remember those teachers that did that. So I, I, I applaud that teacher for that. And there's so many teachers like her around. I know. And I, and I think there's so many kids who, for whatever reason, outside of the classroom, they're not getting that two-minute hug from somebody else. Mm. And so she's like filling this need. And, and as a secondary teacher where you kind of like, you know, as a high school, you know, he's in sixth grade. So it's that interesting between elementary and middle school kind of year. But like at high school, you don't really touch your students. But I'm thinking, God, these little ones, they just need so much. And these teachers are incredible, the amount of love and patience and presence that they have with these kids. It's just, it's remarkable. It it is remarkable. And I think if I go back to what we talked about, our our international travel and our work, I think one of the things that we've both talked about is the amount of gratitude um, and the openness that a lot of the teachers that we've worked with overseas have kind of developed. Oh my gosh, Same here in the U.S. But, you know, we have so many resources and things that are available. Things are tough right now in education. But I think when we talk about gratitude and perspective taking, sometimes we have to look outside of ourselves and look in other places and see what are other people dealing with? I think we both had some participants in our sessions that were Syrian refugees mm-hmm. that came with open hearts and open minds and just soaking up as much learning as possible. So as challenging as things can be, part of perspective taking is saying, you know, what are the things in my life that are going well? And it could, and it could be something else. So how do I have gratitude for what I have? And then also, how do I have compassion for other people? Yes. And how do I kind of reach out? And I think for you and I both, that international travel is so important just to see what it's like. And if you can't go internationally, just in different areas of your community, yeah. you know, where can you reach out and where can you make a difference? And I, and I think that's important. And it adds fulfilling for the person who participates. Yeah, I remember when I <laughs> I remember being in Senegal and I was setting up my room and I'm doing a blended learning, like all day workshop. <laughs> and the Wi-Fi was horrendous. Like it was so slow. And I thought, oh my goodness, these teachers are going to come. I'm running everything off of a Google classroom. So much of what we're going to do is online. And I thought (laughs) this is going to be like an exercise in frustration. And it was fascinating because these educators were so relaxed and grateful to be there. And when we hit bumps, which we did the entire time, it was just like, oh, this is spinning. This isn't loading. We're going to have to modify and come offline. They were like, 
no problem. Like this happens like here, we could do it this way. And I just thought, wow, how incredible. If I had been in the States and we had been, (laughs) I had been facilitating that workshop, people would have been so frustrated. Like, this is why we can't use technology. This is why technology is so frustrating. And being on a totally different continent with educators who face just all kinds of different connectivity challenges, they were so much more relaxed and just grateful to have the opportunity to learn, even if it was going to be slow and even if things didn't load and we had to be kind of creative and adapt activities to make it work. It was, yeah, so I agree. It just gave me a really different perspective on how educators in different parts of the world are navigating challenges that are similar yet different from what we navigate here in the States, for sure. Absolutely. And sometimes it's just good to sit in someone else's shoes for a bit, just if if for no other reason than to say, hey, you know, things aren't that bad. And right. <laughs> sometimes things aren't going to go our way and we just got to move forward with it. Yeah, absolutely. So I know we both share kind of a passion for student inquiry, and I feel like I've always been focused when my work around blended learning with developing kind of a community of inquiry and allowing students to ask questions and drive the learning, because I think it really can have a positive impact on some of the imbalances that exist in a classroom and maybe correct some of the imbalances around power structures in the classroom and who owns the learning. So in your work, what do you articulate for teachers as the benefits of moving toward a student inquiry approach to teaching and learning? So one of the things that teachers always say is they want kids to be more engaged and and student inquiry really and set up for kids and for teachers as well, right? You see greater student engagement. And one of the most important things I say to teachers is you've got 30 kids in a class and there's one of you. How do you get kids to be active participants in the learning process? If a student doesn't understand something, nine times out of 10, they'll be able to tell you where that missing piece is. So it's really important to allow them to engage in questions and conversations about what they're learning and about how they're learning. And a a lot of times I think what scares teachers is they think it means it's a free-for-all. Well, the kids mm-hmm. are just going to go around and ask questions every day. Right. But you and I both know there are all different types of, of guided, structured, open inquiry. And it's really about getting kids to ask questions, develop those skills of critical thinking skills, all those social and emotional learning skills we talked about, communication skills, social skills, self-management skills, thinking and research skills. Those approaches to teaching and learning are all developed through letting kids engage in student inquiry, right? They don't get that when they're sitting to the, the listening to the teacher or they're taking notes. They get right. it through dialogue and participation. So it also helps deepen their learning as well, right? If some of the research says you learn best when you're teaching others, mm-hmm. that's part of the inquiry process as well. Um, so teachers are, are usually excited about that. And it's it's really telling them, you've got to get messy with it, right? <laughs> but messy is scary. And and I yeah. totally agree. Like learning is a messy process or it should be. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things that I read this fascinating book and um, I can't remember what his first name is, but his last name is Lippman, maybe Matthew Lippman. And he was talking about how no wonder kids aren't curious. No wonder they lose that curiosity in school because what we've done is kind of like pack we figured things out and packaged up the answers and asked mm-hmm. students to 
learn them, memorize them, remember them, but they don't have any, and they don't have any skin in the game. They don't have any investment because Mm -hmm. they're not answers to questions that they asked or questions that they care about. So Mm -hmm. how are we creating spaces in our classroom? Like you said, to allow kids to ask questions, to drive the learning, to engage in conversation, to make meaning with the people who are in this room with them. And that's not a linear, quick, you know, process. That's something that can be very, you know, almost like cyclical. You're going to revisit things. You're going to have questions once you answer this question over here. And it's messy. And a lot of times I think teachers are uncomfortable because it's, they're going to fall behind on a pacing guide, or it's not necessarily in line with the particular curriculum they're trying to cover. Right. And questioning doesn't mean asking a few kids in the room. Questioning means you know, that balance of communication in the classroom and getting the kids the opportunity to talk in a small groups and maybe as a group, they share their understandings. As a teacher, it actually helps you with efficiencies and time. I might think that I'm going to teach you this particular concept and half the class might already have that understanding. Mm-hmm. So how do I as a teacher ask questions and engage in inquiry and ask the kids, hey, what do you guys know about this? What do you want to know? What are you wondering about and also, how are you building on their prior learning and their personal experiences? There's no sense in having a spiraling curriculum if we don't go back and revisit or at least touch those prior learning experiences. So how do teachers use inquiry to do that? And again, allow kids to be active participants in the teaching and learning process. Help them to see the connections and find out what they do or don't know. So you can streamline your teaching or your learning engagement and kind of be an observer in the room and listen and let the kids think about, okay, what do I want to know about this? And how am I going to figure that out? So it's that piece of blended learning that you talk about. The kids are partners in that process. And that's what really inquiry is meant to do, is to allow kids to have some agency to figure out what do they need to do in this process and how do they learn more? Yeah. And I think sometimes, and I don't know if you've encountered this, I think sometimes teachers like the idea of, they're like, yeah, Mm -hmm. student inquiry, of course, but they're not necessarily sure how to go about it. Like they almost need a structure. So when I'm working with teachers and we're planning a lesson, one of the first questions I ask, or one of the first things we have to decide is what instructional model are we going to use? And when I mm-hmm. think about teachers who really want to prioritize inquiry, I'm I'm often recommending, okay, have you ever played with the five E's instructional model? How can mm-hmm. we think about the planning a lesson or a series of lessons using that kind of engage, explore, explain, mm-hmm. elaborate, evaluate Uh, process so that, you know, we are engaging them, like you said, in tapping into their prior knowledge, maybe getting them to drive inquiry by asking questions about a particular topic that they're interested in exploring. Mm -hmm. How do we either, if they're really young, kind of give them kind of links and resources they can explore, or if they're older, allow them some time to dig into searches and YouTube videos and try to understand a topic and talk about it, crowdsource information. So I think sometimes it's like, I like this idea of inquiry, but it feels kind of nebulous. And so Mm -hmm. how do we pin it down into more of a structure or an instructional model that then teachers can kind of run with? I think that's a really important point. The same thing that we say about students in terms of scaffolding the learning Mm -hmm. we have to do for teachers as well. And where do they feel comfortable? 
We can't ask teachers to differentiate for learners if we're not willing to differentiate for teachers as well. Agreed. Are they happy? Are they more comfortable with structured inquiry? And is that a good starting point where they kind of own the questions and the content for a bit? And then they do a gradual release to guided inquiry to more open inquiry. Mm -hmm. I think you have to allow that space for teachers. So like you said, they can develop the structures and the protocols and the processes. So it's, it's organized chaos and learning where everybody <laughs> knows what their role is, right? Okay, right. if I've done this, then this. So I think we have to allow that for teachers as well. And also let them experience inquiry. You know, when I do presentations, I'm doing less and less talking and more and more listening. Yep. Filtering the information and not inundating them with information. I think you and I both use Padlets and other platforms to say, okay, I'm going to introduce this. I want you to explore and investigate on your own. And then we're going to come back to it. And share what you learned. <laughs> Absolutely. You've really got to filter and focus. And we've got to allow that for teachers as well. Because generally, I think teachers are very open to the idea of letting students drive learning. Um, I think they are surprised when they see the types of questions that kids ask. But again, it goes back to that time piece. If teachers are mandated by pacing guides or by administrators who come in the room because the district says you have to be on this page at this time, they're going to be less apt to do that inquiry piece. Oh, yeah. The more teachers feel pinned down in terms of time constraints, curriculum constraints, yeah. pacing guide constraints, the less they're, they have the flexibility to be creative and nimble and allow students to engage in this messy process that is learning. I, I sometimes worry that we are creating disengaged teachers because mm. they don't they don't enjoy autonomy or agency to the gr- degree that they really need to to be really engaged and motivated by this very challenging work that we're asking them to do. I, I think that the, the the data would probably say that with a number of teachers that are leaving education because they are not given the flexibility of being a professional or the latitude to, to get messy with the learning. And it means the leadership at the district level and the site-based level has to be willing to allow things to be a little uncertain for a while as you kind of experiment with how this learning process is going um, and, and let kids and teachers make those connections to prior learning and see what's happening. It's a lot of times when we go, I go into schools and districts, we talk about what are the competing priorities? Yeah. You say you want student-led inquiry, but you have <laughs> pacing guides. And you and I aren't saying that you shouldn't have standards. You could right. be a standards-based school, but you also have to say, what are the concepts and the big ideas that you're allowing students to inquire and teachers to inquire in? Yeah. And don't overload them with one thing after another. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into a school that's like blended learning is our focus because they've basically dumped all this money into technology and they're like, oh, it's not really moving the needle in terms of changing practice. So let's bring in a blended learning expert and let's do some trainings around blended learning and some coaching. And then they give it a year. And I'm like, you're asking teachers who have been in this profession for 10, 15, 20 plus years to change practice. You need to give them the time to experiment, to fail, to iterate, to improve. This is not something that happens overnight. And sometimes I feel like schools don't invest the time and energy to kind of really see through an initiative before they just dump another one on teachers and teachers feel like they they have like initiative whiplash. Absolutely. (laughs) Initiative whiplash is is a very big problem that we all have in education. And I think that, you know, 
it's up to everyone to speak their truth and say what is and isn't working. Right. And even for educational consultants, you know, what is the focus going to be? And what's realistic? And how do you make that happen? And sometimes you just have to be honest and say, this is not the time or the space. And, and maybe you guys need to go back and refocus and take a step back before you move forward. And, and th- those words, intention and balance, keep coming through in our conversation. And I think they're very important words to remember. Yeah. And I think connecting the dots too. So you can have a blended learning. You can be focused on helping teachers to learn about blended learning models and you can have a, an SEL focus and really mm-hmm. be diving into social emotional learning. And you can have an inquiry focus. And what does that look like to have students driving the, the questioning in the classroom? And you can have those happening simultaneously, mm-hmm. but I think we need to do a better job of really highlighting how, okay, you're using a station rotation model, which is a blended learning model. You have kids in small groups. How are you using those groups to give them time to collaborate, communicate, practice self-regulation? Mm-hmm. How are you using those opportunities to give them more opportunities to ask questions and drive the inquiry in the classroom? So kind of connecting the dots between these areas of focus to show teachers and highlight how they overlap and reinforce each other instead of almost treating them like they're totally separate and disconnected, which I often see as well. Absolutely. And I think one of the through strands for those three concepts that you just talked about was inquiry, Mm -hmm. right? How do you engage in that? How do you investigate that? What does that look like? How do you support that in your school community? I think I think you're right. Those three things cannot happen without each without one another. Exactly. But it's just seeing kind of how those processes fit together, and then how do you communicate that and let people get messy with it? Yep. Because that's how you build meaning. Yep. I totally agree. So I usually end this show by asking the guest to um, share some strategy, some routine, something that they do. It can be totally unrelated to education, probably better if it is, that helps them to relax, recharge, and strive for balance in their lives, in their work-life kind of relationship. So what do you do, Maria, to strive for balance? You know, I do a lot of the things that everybody does. I think, you know, watching a good movie or reading a good book, Netflix binging can be my favorite thing. Although (laughs) I always feel guilty after about the third episode, do I really have time to do this? Um, I was just telling a friend of mine that it's the Kardashians 19 year anniversary, which says a lot about me and the fact that I know that. Sometimes you just need some mindless kind of way to to know that you don't have to pay attention to something. And I've really tried to get more time with really good friends and and just reflecting and talking about the things that we're passionate about and the things that drive us and make us happy. And I I think physical exercise is a good one. I'm not the runner uh, that some of my friends are, but I like to just (laughs) walk and take it in and, and be in time in nature is always a good thing just to disconnect and Kind of get away from everything is important. Yeah, maybe leaving that phone at home on your your walk is a good idea. Absolutely, or at the very least, silenting, putting it on silent. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, nobody's trying to get in touch with me that that urgently. Usually, that I can't afford to give at least an hour away from that phone a day. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Well, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on, Maria. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. All the best.
There are several moments in this conversation that really resonated for me. And the first one was Maria's comment about teachers putting on kind of the the safety oxygen mask or the, the metaphorical safety oxygen mask first and then taking care of kids. I think so often in education, we really are focused on the kids, which is wonderful. But teaching is really hard work, particularly in this moment. And teachers have to take care of themselves. They have to be encouraged to take care of themselves. They need to be given some space to take care of themselves. Otherwise, they just don't have anything left for kids. And Teachers are so spread thin that this idea of really prioritizing self-care so that we can be the people we want to be for the students in our room, for the families in our homes, the friends in our lives could not be more important and valuable. Another thing that I kept thinking as I was having this conversation with Maria is just for me personally, how often I beat myself up for not getting everything I expected that I would be able to accomplish in a day done. And the realization that the goals that I set for myself in a day or the the things on my to-do list are just far in excess of what any one human could probably get done. And instead, really starting to think about what am I asking of myself? What is realistic? And like Maria said, having some compassion for yourself. And this is a theme that's come up in a couple of my podcast episodes and one that I really take to heart. It's so important to take care of ourselves, that self-care component, but also just being kind and compassionate to yourself, which is so much easier said than done. But I think as Maria says in this episode, really retraining our brains a little bit to kind of carve out some space to prioritize self-care prioritize that compassion until it just becomes a habit. Okay, so I know that I normally end the episodes with teacher tips that are shared with me from all the fabulous people on Twitter who listen to this podcast and share their tips, the things that are working for them. But I'm going to end this one on a slightly different note or maybe with like a a self-care challenge, we should say. Maria and I collaborated on a series of health and wellness boards. So they're basically like choice boards, the kinds we would use with students where there's a lot of different options and students get to choose one. But it was interesting because when Maria and I were collaborating, I said, hey, Maria, I want to create these these health and wellness boards. You know, people are dealing with all of the stress related to the pandemic and social isolation. Like, I think it would be so great if we created these health and wellness boards for teenagers since they often experience high levels of anxiety and depression. And that has to be exacerbated right now. And she said, again, in our conversation, we should make one for teachers first. So we actually created a health and wellness board for teachers with a bunch of different things you can do to prioritize like little moments for yourself and cultivating that health and wellness in your own life in just small little hopefully enjoyable ways. And then we actually created one for teenagers and we created one for elementary students to do with their parents. So 
In the show notes today, I'm going to link to our health and wellness boards, and I would love to challenge the teachers who listen to The Balance to choose one activity a day for the next week to indulge in a little self-care and mindful moments. And if you want to find me on Twitter and or Maria, you can reach out and let us know what impact that had on just your, your mindset, your energy levels, your, your feelings about yourself and life. So again, I'll put the link to the health and wellness board for teachers in the show notes. And I would love to challenge every teacher listening to just take a few moments each day for the next week to choose something off the choice board, experiment with a a mindful activity and just see what kind of impact it has. So I want to thank you all for joining me for another episode of The Balance. And of course, if you have tips for how you uh, maintain, achieve, um, strive for balance, you can find me on Twitter at Catlin underscore Tucker, or you can find me at my blog, CatlinTucker.com. Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. StudySync's most recently released product, Sync Blasts, expands the company's scope to include an emerging supplemental digital inquiry solution for social studies and science classrooms. Visit studysync.com for more information or visit the link in our show notes. By the way, the views expressed in this podcast are my own. Thanks again for listening in. Thanks again for listening in.